Welcome, Onion People, to part two of our podcast, Will the Real God Please Stand Up? In the first part of this series, one of our tasks was to dismantle sick, dysfunctional, and spiritually bankrupt God images put out there by various politicians and pastors. As in psychotherapy, we first uproot all that does not serve us in leading a healthy spiritual life. Then there is room to lay down a vibrant, enlivening spiritual perspective. In some way, we are practicing psychotherapy on a dysfunctional culture, on a sick religion, on a spiritual illness. So in broad terms, let's see what we might offer toward a spiritually sane approach. If we listen to our experience, it seems that many of us must lose our religion in order to discover our spirituality. Moving from the collective to the individual, from a group mentality to a personal one, from the codified past communicated by doctrine and dogma to the experiential present, from the safe to the searching, from the status quo to the edge, from the conventional to the creative, from the oppressive to the innovative, from being asleep to being awake. In some way, we lose God in order to be found again by God. Or as Jung put it, sometimes God asks us to go against God. Losing a sense of our God image is a terrible thing. It's like being cut loose from our moorings, having the ground shake beneath our feet. For many of us, Christianity, as conveyed by the institutional church, no longer holds us emotionally or psychologically. So we enter into a painful waiting for the return of some taste of the divine that sets our feet back on the ground. One of the early desert mothers asserts that when we move, our experience of God undergoes change. Understood psychologically, our God image likely changes as we undergo the natural rhythms of life. Transitions in vocation, in relationship, in parenting, at midlife, when we suffer losses, as we age. But in it all, bidden or not bidden, God is present, claims Carl Jung. He echoes Jesus' first sermon, the reign of God, and here the Greek is ambiguous, the reign of God is falling upon you, in the midst of you, within you. Likewise, Augustine in the fourth century states, God is more intimate to me than I am to myself. The mystic Meister Eckhart in the 14th century says, Between God and the soul there is neither strangeness or distance. And Martin Luther, God is closer to me than the shirt on my back. Finally, Jungian analyst and Episcopalian priest John Sanford points out that when God was made flesh as Christ, 
It was as though the divine word was broken up and thinned out throughout creation. Rather than thinking of God out there or up there, we would do better to envision the energy of God's presence surrounding or enveloping us in all of creation. Father Thomas Keaton tells us that we make a crucial mistake if we are praying to a God up there somewhere rather than to God right next to us. We live and breathe within the life and breath of God. We live within the presence of God's being. And if this is the case, then everyone and everything is connected within this web of holiness. The tragedy is that most are not aware. Most remain unconscious. In liturgical churches, the year begins with the season of Advent. Advent cries out with A words, awake, aware, alert, attentive. In a similar fashion, the Buddha also points this out, his very name meaning the awakened one. One root meaning of the word religion is to tie back, which leads to ritual. As a collective experience, ritual binds us back to a previous state of being, signified by the act of confession and absolution. But the more ancient etymology of the word religion has to do with taking into careful account, which seems to me to be a more personal approach, thus our spirituality. Rather than waiting for some appointed time for Sabbath, we awaken each day to God's presence in, with, and under everything known through our five senses. Buddhist activist and teacher Joanna Macy writes, our lives are as intricately interwoven as nerve cells in the mind of a great being. Out of that vast net, you cannot fall. No stupidity or failure or cowardice can ever sever you from that living web, for that is what you are. Rest in that knowing. Rest in the great peace. Out of it we can act, we can dare anything, and let every encounter be a homecoming to our true nature. Amazingly, there is a God of relationship, a God of presence, a God near and dear. Religion in the West, though, continues for the most part to hold up a God of power. This has led to a seemingly unresolvable dilemma. If God is all-powerful, then he must not be all-good, given the suffering in the world. Or if God is all-good, then he must not be all-powerful, given the suffering in the world. We seem not to have noticed the shift in the being of God since Jesus arrived on the scene. St. Paul writes in Philippians, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the God we can know, the God in the flesh who empties himself of power, asking us to do the same. Where there is love, there is not power, and where there is power, there is not love. This is an innate humbling of oneself, as did Jesus. This is a move to being vulnerable to the slings and arrows of life. Following the example of Jesus, we too live our own personal, peculiar life as God comes to us as our life. We too suffer the weight of our own cross, undergoing our own humiliations, our own injustices, our own failures, our own foibles, our own losses. Jesus nailed to the cross is the sacred image held up as a bleak but life-giving path that we are all asked to follow, being nailed to the cross of our existence. But what God image seems dominant around us? A Santa Claus God, checking his list to see who's been naughty or nice, with heaven as the wonderfully wrapped present for good boys and girls. We know religion is becoming a mere shadow of itself when it becomes overly concerned with morality and the hot, petty sins, as if listening to secular music or embracing one's own sexuality or by drinking, smoking a little weed, being tattooed and pierced or imagined as being outside of God's domain. For as I'm fond of saying, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. We may forget that Jesus was accused of being a glutton, a drunkard, and a blasphemer. If this is spirituality, consider me out the door. So let's pause for a moment and consider this word sin. We suffer under the burden of centuries of images of judgment, condemnation, images of hellfire and an angry God when it comes to sin. Yet if we look at the dominant image of sin in the New Testament, the Greek word actually just means missing the mark. It is an image of an archer who draws an arrow from his quiver aims with everything he has at the bullseye, and misses. If we understand the nature of the unconscious, it helps us understand this image of sin. Freud and Jung agreed that the ego is like a small island on the vast ocean of the unconscious. In our hubris, we falsely believe that we are in control of our own destiny. What a joke! The daunting power of the unconscious affects everything we do. So Jung's image of God clearly rings with the notion of the unconscious in the background. To this day, God is the name by which I designate all things, 
which cross my willful path violently and recklessly, all things which upset my subjective views, plans and intentions, and change the course of my life for better or worse. This God is no longer miles of abstract space away from you in an extra-mundane sphere. This divinity is not a concept in a theological textbook or in the Bible. It is an immediate thing. It happens in your dreams at night. It causes you to have pains in the stomach, diarrhea, constipation, and a whole host of neuroses. This helps us understand why the ego can stand for edging God out. So it is that our ego has to be defeated time and time again so that it surrenders to the higher power, if you will. So when we miss the mark, we don't kick ourselves or worry about punishment. Our spiritual approach allows us to reflect on where we have missed the mark and search for ways to rightly hit the target. If we get out from under guilt and shame for our mistakes, we learn and grow and mature and deepen into a more expansive sense of self. Within this spiritual framework, where might our focus be? Again, Joanna Macy challenges us to act on the teachings of our spiritual founders. For us to regard the threat of climate catastrophe, nuclear war, the dying seas or the poisoned air as a monstrous injustice suggests that we never took seriously the injunction to love. Perhaps we all thought that the Buddha and Jesus were kidding or that their teachings were meant only for saints. But now comes the daunting revelation that we are all called to be saints. Not good, necessarily, or pious or devout, but saints in the sense of just caring for one another. What One wonders what terrors this knowledge must hold that we fight it so and flee from it in such pain. Can our present capacity to extinguish all life tell us this? Can it force us to face the terrors of love? Can it be the occasion of our birth? In that possibility, we take heart even in confusion and fear. With all our weariness and petty faults, we can let that awareness work in and through our lives. Any viable spirituality today must be an eco-spirituality. As Matthew Fox writes, the universe itself, blessed and graced, is the proper starting point for spirituality. So it is that the world's leading climate scientists recently warned that human-induced climate change is causing dangerous and widespread disruption in nature, with people and ecosystems least able to cope being the hardest hit. The report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, approved by 195 member states, 
makes clear that minor, reactive, or incremental changes are no longer sufficient to tackle the climate emergency. The IPCC's authors found that people's health, lives, and livelihoods were increasingly being adversely affected by extreme weather events and slow onset changes, such as rising sea levels. It follows a 12-month period in which the world has seen record-breaking heat waves and wildfires in North America, flooding events causing devastation in Europe and China, severe drought prompting a hunger crisis across the Horn of Africa, and unprecedented changes in the polar regions. Reacting to the IPCC's findings, U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, said the report paints a dire picture of the impacts already occurring because of a warmer world and the terrible risk to our planet if we continue to ignore science. Individuals and communities must face our very real situation. In our political stance, perhaps we need to consider becoming one-issue voters, that regardless of political party, we only elect candidates who are willing to face and work for salvation of the planet. For too long, Christianity has focused its people on getting to heaven. But if we don't change this focus, we will continue to create hell on earth. Jung states that what we don't face makes us ill. By not facing what is happening all around us, we are creating illness around the globe. A worthwhile spirituality calls us to remain conscious of our present situation. It means remaining aware of the destruction all around us. Only if increasing numbers of us bear the weight of the disaster forming around us do we have any chance of mitigating the trauma. Perhaps now is the time to remind ourselves that the word happy does not appear in the New Testament. Somehow, though, too many of us measure our life within the framework of, does it make me happy? It's time to grow up and maintain our perspective on what is happening. Within Sufi wisdom, one is called to serve and help others, not to sit and pray. In a teaching story, Muhammad was told about a man who spent all his time in the mosque praying. He asked, who feeds him? His brother was the reply. Then his brother is better than he, replied Muhammad. In quoting from the Sufis, the mystical branch of Islam, a contemporary spirituality looks for wisdom from all spiritual traditions, for we need to turn away from salvation to survival. For too long, Christianity has been plagued by a narcissistically grandiose perspective that other religions are not acceptable, that they are less than, that people of a different spiritual tradition need to be converted. The shadow side of this viewpoint is responsible for great violence done to people of other traditions. 
If we are to survive as a world, as a world community, we must no longer try to convert, but rather respect others and the wisdom of their traditions. An eyes-wide-open spirituality knows that we are one. Everything and everyone is connected. Kill the honeybees and plants are not pollinated. Start a war in the Ukraine and supply chains are devastated. Continue overusing fossil fuels and the ice caps melt that then cause flooding. It goes on and on. We have failed miserably as stewards of the planet. In our hubris, we have seen the other, animal and plants, as inferior to human beings. Rather than being fellow subjects, we have treated them as objects to be used for our benefit. Frankly, we need them more than they need us. A workable spirituality re-souls the world. At one time in our development, it was necessary to reject the idea that everything was ensouled. After all, it's impossible to cut down a tree for shelter if that tree has soul. So before long, the only being ensouled was the human. But desouling the world eventually doomed the world. In our soulless so-called progress, we destroy species and entire forests. We pollute the oceans and foul our air. We create climates that make it impossible to survive. And now Mother Earth's payback, raging forest fires, flooding as in one-third of Pakistan underwater, droughts that threaten crops and water supplies, more destructive hurricanes and tornadoes, millions of displaced persons looking for a viable context for living. In our garden, we have a large sedum. At this moment, there are clusters of tiny pink blossoms. Just a few years ago, the sedum was teeming for days and days and days with honeybees. As I walked around our gardens this morning, there are no honeybees. Father Richard Rohr calls nature our first Bible. Today, if we read it, we weep. If we stay awake, we carry anxiety about the state of our world. But perhaps it is holy anxiety. Dear friends, I think this is enough for today. Being able to hold an awakened spirituality is no easy task, but it is a necessary task. In writing, I realize that envisioning a contemporary spirituality will require more time and reflection. So in two weeks, we continue our reflection on what might be a spirituality for our day? Stay awake and alert.
Laura.